Truly Atrocious is made for mature audiences. The following program contains depictions of violent and disturbing content, which may be too intense for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It takes a village to raise a child. The old adage still rings true, even in the 21st century. 52-year-old Rhonda Oakley knew this all too well, having successfully raised four children of her own. So in 2016, when her husband's two children came to live with them, Rhonda was more than willing to offer all the support that she could. Philip Oakley felt lucky. His children had a difficult upbringing with their mother, his ex-wife, and he could think of no better influence on his kids than Rhonda. She had a big heart and a vibrant personality. She'd do anything for anyone. But as we all know, selflessness often comes with a price, especially when love is involved. I'm Amber, and this is Truly Atrocious. Where to, the Uber driver said as the young man entered his car on August 31st, 2016. It was hot that afternoon, and the driver was relieved to be sitting beneath the cool breeze of his air conditioning. Houstonville Road in Danville. Nice, the driver thought. It was a long trip, about an hour, but it'd be good money. Plus, the guy seemed okay enough. He wasn't a big talker, but he had mentioned that he'd been coming from Colorado, where he had just been discharged from the Army. As they approached Houstonville Road, the young man requested to be let out before getting to the house. The driver thought this was a bit weird, but the man explained himself away, stating that he wanted to surprise his girlfriend. What a nice guy, the driver thought as he turned back onto the highway, speeding towards the city for what he was hoping would be a bustling evening shift. Kenneth Nye approached his girlfriend's home with a building sense of anticipation and dread. One way or another, he and Jenna were going to be together. A Danville teen is missing after her stepmother is found dead. 15-year-old Jenna Oakley was last seen Wednesday wearing black-framed glasses at Boyle County High School. Kentucky State Police believe that she could be in a white 2014 Honda Civic, WDRP News reported. A woman dead, a teenage girl missing. It was shocking news for the residents of Danville, Kentucky. Not as shocking as it was for David Oakley, however. The 13-year-old boy arrived home from school that Thursday afternoon to a flurry of barking from the family's three dogs. He ignored them at first and started cleaning up dirty dishes in the sink. Minutes passed and the howling and scratching only worsened, which prompted David to check out what was going on. As he made his way downstairs and into the spare bedroom, what he encountered was something he could have never thought to conjure up, even in his worst nightmares. There. Laying in a pool of her own blood was his stepmother, Rhonda. She had a black garbage bag duct taped around her face, and it was clear that she'd been stabbed in the throat. Panic immediately set in, and the young boy rushed to the other room in the basement, which belonged to his sister, Jenna. His first instinct was to make sure that she was okay since she had stayed home from school sick that day. His heart sank when he found her room empty. Wasting no time, David rushed to his neighbor's home to call 911 and then soon after, call his father, Philip Oakley. 
Philip was on his way home from work when his phone started to ring. He answered it without thinking too much about the random number showing up, and he was surprised to hear his son David on the other end. It was hard to make out what David was saying. He was sobbing so much and on the verge of hyperventilation. All Philip could make out was one phrase that his son kept repeating. Rhonda is gone. Whatever had happened, Philip knew that it was bad as he approached his home on Houstonville Road. Silver Kentucky State Police vehicles were blocking the street. He saw David almost immediately, and it was all Philip could do to get to his son, who was in a clear state of hyperventilation. Philip would soon find himself burdened with the same suffocating feeling of distress when he learned that Rhonda had been murdered in their home. As if things couldn't get any worse, David confirmed that Jenna was gone as well. Philip's heart sank as he also informed the police that Rhonda's car, a white Honda Civic, was missing from the driveway. That information, coupled with the fact that Jenna was missing, led Philip to the only possible conclusion. Kenneth Nye was involved in this. He wasted no time in telling the police that he suspected his daughter's 20-year-old boyfriend had something to do with Jenna's disappearance and Rhonda's murder. According to Philip, Jenna met Kenneth at school when she was living with her biological mother in Indiana. They rode the same school bus and seemed to start forming a relationship at this time. While a school bus romance seems innocent enough, it's important to note that Jenna was only 11 or 12 years old, which would have put Kenny at 16 or 17 years old and in his later years of high school when this started. According to the Advocate Messenger, a newspaper out of Danville, it was said that Jenna's mother encouraged her young daughter's relationship with Kenneth. And to that point, Jenna's mother doesn't seem as if she'll be winning Mom of the Year anytime soon. We'll get into that more later, but for now, it seems as if living with her mother wasn't working out for Jenna or her younger brother, David. Months before Rhonda's murder, Jenna called her father and asked if she could come live with him and Rhonda. Without hesitation, he said yes. It seems like common knowledge, and I'd be remiss to not mention it, but courts do tend to side with the mother over the father in custody arrangements. While I'm unaware of what Philip and his ex-wife's custody agreements were with the children, by all accounts, it does seem as if Philip wanted to try to do best by his kids, and that he was genuinely happy to have them come live with him. After dinner arrived, David would also come to live with him and Rhonda permanently as well. Jenna and David seemed to settle in seamlessly at first with their father and Rhonda. They were both thriving in school, especially Jenna, who was said to be a great student by her teachers. She was also on the cheerleading squad, and according to Jenna's aunt, Rhonda would even assist with transporting Jenna to and from her school events. Eventually, things started to get a bit bumpy in the household when her parents discovered her relationship with Kenneth. Obviously, they forbade Jenna from communicating with Kenneth immediately. Being a 15-year-old girl, Jenna didn't listen, and to be fair, I don't know a single teenager who would. Jenna would inevitably agree to her father and her stepmother's rules. All the while, Kenneth is currently serving in the Army and is stationed in Colorado. At the time, he was petitioning to be a conscientious objector so that he would be able to be discharged from the Army. If you're like me and had no idea what this means, I'm here to save you from a Google search. A conscientious objector is an individual who has claimed the right to refuse to perform in the military on grounds of freedom of thought, conscience, or religion. 
Inevitably, Kenneth wouldn't have to worry about his petition because he learned that if you fail the physical exam for the Army, you would be discharged sooner. So that's what he did. He purposefully failed the physical exam and would be discharged on August 31, 2016. Detective Frank Thornberry was assigned to the case and made quick work of learning everything he could about Kenneth Nye. Within hours, he was able to confirm his dishonorable discharge with the Fort Carson base in Colorado. The Army had provided Nye with a plane ticket back home to Indiana. However, Nye had spoken with the airline and had the ticket routed to Bluegrass Airport out of Lexington, Kentucky instead. Upon learning this information, Detective Thornberry was able to obtain surveillance footage from the airport and identify Kenneth Nye. Using this footage, they were able to determine that he'd taken an Uber from the airport to Danville on August the 31st. With this information in hand, the police put out a bolo, or be on the lookout, for Jenna Oakley and Kenneth Nye, along with Rhonda's white Honda Civic. They were also able to contact Kenneth Nye's cell phone carrier so that they could get a ping on his phone. Due to the possibility of Jenna's life being in danger, the carrier was obligated to ping the cell phone to help locate Jenna. They were able to get an immediate ping on Kenneth's location. At first, they were able to locate him in Glasgow, Kentucky, which was about 100 miles south of Danville. Following that, they were able to get another ping hours later in Nashville, Tennessee. The cell phone carrier confirmed that all of the incoming pings were being delayed by 30 to 45 minutes because Kenneth was constantly turning the cell phone on and off so that the police couldn't track him. Eventually, the pings stopped coming in consistently, but the police were able to identify a clear route. Kenneth was traveling west on I-40. The police efforts with the Bolo and media coverage paid off for them quickly. They heard back from the manager at a local Walmart in Danville, who had claimed to have seen Jenna in the store that day. The relief that police felt was short-lived upon viewing the footage from Walmart surveillance cameras. They were able to identify both Jenna and Nye, specifically Nye given that he was wearing the exact same outfit that he'd been wearing in the airport surveillance footage. They were seen exiting a white Honda Civic matching Rhonda's stolen car. The couple could be seen rushing into the store with Jenna leading the way. They were both calm and collected. In fact, in the surveillance footage, you can even see Jenna intentionally reaching out and touching Kenneth's arm. It was a clear indication to the police that Jenna wasn't being held against her will. The couple then purchased a phone charger for their car and proceeded to leave Walmart and get back into Rhonda's Honda before taking off. As police continue pinging Kenneth's phone to get a recent location for the couple, detectives were also canvassing the crime scene and were starting to uncover some damning evidence. They discovered a missing knife from the kitchen knife block and they were assuming that it was the murder weapon at this point. They were unable to locate the knife at the scene, however. They also discovered a trash bin full of vomit in Jenna's room. They were unsure of why it was there, but it did raise red flags. The most significant piece of evidence that they found in the home was Jenna's journal. Most of the entries were that of a typical teenage girl. You can imagine, given that she was enthralled with this older guy, that there were numerous entries of her professing her love for him, looking forward to the day that they were reunited again. Hey, I'm not one to judge here. I'm sure if anyone read my journals from my 15-year-old self, there would be a ton of cringeworthy entries. 
but what the detectives found in some of Jenna's later entries were downright disturbing. Within the journal was a pretty morbid to-do list on a sheet of notebook paper. The list read as following. Let him know about my plan. Have a bag packed and prepared. Have a knife prepared. Stab them first. At this point, it was clear that Kenneth wasn't the only suspect in Rhonda's murder. The finding of Jenna's journal was timely because it was one day after the discovery that the police were able to obtain two pings from Kenneth's phone that indicated that the couple had stopped traveling. These pings came from Tucumcari, New Mexico, which is more than a thousand miles from Danville. The cell phone data helped police narrow down the couple's location to a truck stop off of the interstate. The Kentucky State Police contacted the police station in Tucumcari so that they could locate Jenna and Kenneth. Tucumcari Police Detective Cody Birch investigated but was unable to locate the 2014 white Honda Civic. He decided to broaden his search. The area around the rest stop had a number of hotels which Detective Birch decided to scope out. Luckily, he was able to locate the car matching the description in the parking lot of a hotel. Upon approaching the car, he saw that there was a young couple inside of the vehicle who were trying to sleep. The detective shined his light into the vehicle, which spooked the female, which did in fact happen to be Jenna Oakley. Immediately, she jumped into the driver's seat and started the car in an attempt to run away. The detective pulled out his gun as a precaution. When Kenneth saw the police officer pull out his gun, he managed to talk to Jenna and convince her to shut the car off. He then proceeded to exit the vehicle and surrender himself to the police. The detective noted that Kenneth was very calm and collected during this process, whereas Jenna was agitated and very emotional. During the arrest, she was persistently telling the police officers to tell Kenneth that she loved him, realizing that it'd be a long time before they were able to see each other again. After the couple was booked, the authorities in New Mexico and Kentucky collaborated to get the couple extradited back to Kentucky to face their charges. Given that Jenna was a minor and being housed by a juvenile facility, it did make the extradition process trickier and more time-consuming. Rhonda's loved ones, as well as the police investigating the case, were eager to get them both back to Kentucky so that they could start the process to get justice for Rhonda. On September 5th, however, a friend of the Oakley family had been checking the Tucumcari online inmate list and realized that Kenneth had been released from custody. Philip Oakley immediately contacted the authorities in Kentucky to see what was going on. When Kentucky State Police called the Tucumcari police, they found out that Kenneth had attempted suicide in his cell and had been released to the hospital for emergency treatment. Apparently, there was a hook on the wall in his cell that he had tied a blanket to in an attempt to hang himself. In his cell, the police also found the following suicide note. Two readers. I, Kenneth Nye, admit to killing Rhonda Oakley. Jenna had nothing to do with it. She was not in the house when I killed Rhonda. I take blame for everything. I am truly sorry. Kenneth Nye. Kenneth was in critical condition for weeks, with no brain activity at all. Six weeks later, he would succumb to his injuries. Nine days after their arrest, on September 12, 2016, Jenna was extradited back to Kentucky. 
The police wanted to hear what Jenna had to say without the knowledge that Kenneth had taken full responsibility for the murder in a suicide note. So keep in mind that when Jenna provides her confession, she does so without the knowledge that Kenneth is brain dead or that he had ever committed suicide. Jenna stayed home from school that day on September 1st so that she could spend the day with Kenneth. Unbeknownst to her, Rhonda had come home from work early. She had previously been out of town earlier that week for a conference and had decided to get a head start on laundry. I'm sure living with two teenagers who are in school, plus two adults that work full-time, laundry is just one of those chores that are never done. Upon entering Jenna's room to collect her dirty laundry, Rhonda was surprised to find her stepdaughter there and not in school. Jenna told her that she'd stayed home from school, which resulted in Rhonda scolding her. The disapproval from Rhonda was like a match to the fuel of rage that Jenna had kept bottled up over the past few months. She already had so much pent-up anger towards Rhonda and her father. They had taken her cell phone a few months back and forbade her from speaking with Kenneth during that time. In fact, her father Philip had even threatened to call the police on Kenny, stating that he was a sexual predator given that he was a 20-year-old man and his daughter was only 15. Jenna feared that Kenny would get in trouble and had half-heartedly agreed to stop talking to him. All the while, she continued to talk to Kenny by using a friend's cell phone while she was at school. Jenna was just biding her time, waiting for the perfect opportunity to get rid of her parents so that she could be with Kenny forever. According to Jenna's journal, the plan was to kill her father first. She wanted to kill him between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. by tricking him into coming downstairs. While on the way downstairs, her plan was to slice his throat. After he was dead, she wanted to stab Rhonda in her bed while she was asleep. After Rhonda was dead, she ultimately planned on killing her brother David in his sleep as well. All of those ideas didn't go to plan, though. As Rhonda accused Jenna of skipping school, Jenna finally reached her breaking point. Immediately, she pounced on her stepmother and began choking her. Kenneth, who had been hiding in the closet up to this point, jumped out and immediately put Rhonda into a chokehold until she passed out. After she lost consciousness, they dragged her into the spare bedroom in the basement and taped her mouth shut with duct tape, while also covering and taping a black garbage bag over her head. From there, Jenna took out a knife. It was a knife that she'd gotten out of the kitchen knife block earlier that day and had hidden in her room. She tried stabbing Rhonda in the neck, but Jenna was having a difficult time. As many amateur killers seem to realize, killing someone is actually hard. I'm pretty sure that's the biggest sign in the world that you probably shouldn't be doing it. Anyway, Jenna stabbed Rhonda a few more times in the neck until the knife finally went through. Kenny, on the other hand, was coming to terms with what was happening right in front of him and was having a hard time stomaching the situation. And I mean that literally. He had to turn away and find a trash can so that he could vomit. This corroborated the evidence that the police found at the crime scene, which lent credibility to Jenna's confession. When investigators asked her about the murder weapon, she confirmed that it was thrown away at a gas station while they were on the road. Conveniently, she couldn't recall which gas station it was, so the police were never able to retrieve the murder weapon. Ironically, while Jenna had shown many signs of being extremely emotional, starting from the rage that she'd had with her parents that led to Rhonda's killing, to her distressing arrest in New Mexico, 
Detective Thornberry notably stated that he was shocked to see that Jenna exhibited no remorse or emotion during her confession. Most juveniles were prone to break down and cry in these situations, but with Jenna, he didn't witness that from her. In Jenna's confession, she downplayed Kenneth's role and it seemed clear that her intentions were premeditated. Jenna finally found out about Kenneth's death at a pretrial hearing. Detective Thornberry recalls being in the courthouse that day. He was in another room, but he could hear Jenna screaming when she found out about Kenneth's death from her lawyer. Since there were two conflicting confessions, one being Kenneth's suicide note and the other being Jenna's account, prosecutors charged Jenna with complicity to commit murder and theft for stealing Rhonda's vehicle. Given Jenna's age as well as Kenneth no longer being able to attest to the crime, the prosecution would offer Jenna a plea deal. Jenna's defense team wanted to ensure that Jenna got a reduced sentence for her crimes, thus they hired on two mitigation specialists. One specialist for Jenna's defense said that she feels that the family's lack of involvement in Jenna's life could have been a precursor to the crimes that she committed. She stated that not once during her time working on Jenna's case with her defense team did her mother or her father call to check in on her. To play devil's advocate here, it was known that Jenna's mother wasn't exactly maternal. Before Jenna moved to Kentucky to live with her father, she had been living with her mother, Christy Wood Poe, in Indiana. When Jenna was only three years old, Child Protective Services were called when a neighbor claimed that the children were being left at home alone for long periods of time with no adult supervision, in addition to reports of rats being around the home as well. The social worker for CPS noted that Christy was hostile towards her during the visit to check on the children and wouldn't allow the social workers into the home. When they were finally permitted entry into the home, there was garbage everywhere, along with vomit and feces, both human and animal, scattered throughout the house. A former babysitter of Jenna's would also state that Jenna was often covered in flea bites, which she would scratch constantly, resulting in scabs and bleeding. Jenna's half-siblings as well noted that the children were abused in the household. On top of that shining review, Christy worked at a local jail and formed a romantic relationship with an inmate. She in turn bonded the inmate out of jail and brought him home to live with her and her children. Given this information, I do feel bad for younger Jenna, but that doesn't justify her killing her stepmother. In addition to that, her brother David was raised in the exact same household and he's not out here committing murder. And then with her father, I'm sorry, but you can't blame the guy. Jenna brutally murdered his wife and completely traumatized David in the process. That's something that would take years to get past, if ever. I understand the importance of mitigating circumstances, but in this case, Jenna was old enough to know right from wrong. Her parents, particularly her father, cannot be faulted for distancing himself from Jenna completely during her trial. According to the Advocate Messenger, Anthony Lee Tanner, another mitigation specialist for the defense, would provide a scientific explanation regarding how adverse childhood experiences, abuse, and violence can affect the brain. During his interview with Jenna, she confirmed that an adult in her household verbally, physically, and sexually abused her. There is no doubt that Jenna had a tumultuous upbringing living with her mother, but by all accounts, her father and Rhonda were doing their best to provide stability. Unfortunately, Jenna's own reckless actions got in the way of that. 
On March 27, 2019, Jenna was finally sentenced. Her charges would be for first-degree manslaughter, which carries a 10- to 20-year sentence in Kentucky, and theft by unlawful taking or disposition. Jenna was sentenced to just 15 years total for her crimes, 10 years for her stepmother's murder, and 5 years for the car theft. According to the Kentucky Online Offender Lookup, she is eligible for parole on February 27, 2025. In the episode of See No Evil on Investigation Discovery, we see Philip call his daughter in jail and ask her why this happened, and the only thing that she could say was to give a very rhetorical, what do you want, in response. Even after all was said and done, Jenna didn't seem to have any remorse for what she'd done to not only poor Rhonda and her family, but to her little brother David. Not only is he likely extremely traumatized from finding Rhonda's brutally murdered body, but he also had to learn that his sister had planned on killing him as well. If Rhonda hadn't walked in on Jenna skipping school that day, Jenna very likely could have killed her entire family. The saddest report I found on this case came directly from Philip Oakley. In an interview with WLEX18 News, he stated that he had contacted the police weeks before Rhonda's murder concerning an entry he'd found in Jenna's journal. In the journal, there was mention that Jenna had planned on harming Philip and Rhonda. In the interview, he said the following, If someone would have done something, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. If only the report would have been taken seriously, it may have saved Rhonda's life. There's nothing more precious in this world than our children. As a parent, you anticipate having to protect your children against an innumerable amount of dangers, yet you rarely anticipate having to protect yourself against your own children. The mind is a chaotic thing, and coupled with teenage hormones and unlimited content provided to us by the great World Wide Web, none of us can ever be sure what kids will do. This is just a friendly reminder to keep your eyes open and keep them on your kids, not just for their protection, but also for your own. And that's it for this one, folks. Thank you again for tuning in this week. As always, if you'd like to support this podcast, please follow our social media pages at Instagram, Truly Atrocious Pod, TikTok, Truly Atrocious, and Twitter, at Truly Atrocious. And be sure to subscribe and follow for the latest episode drop. If you feel so inclined, please leave a review. Anything and everything will help. See you all soon.